This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern AM, that is. Kate Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen, my faculty colleague and buddy, as well as Audie Weiner, another faculty colleague and buddy. Tweet at us, at W Moneyball, at W Moneyball is our handle. We follow all of our sports analytics guests. It's a great way to stay on top of that field. Um, in the next half hour, we have another guest, Brandon Taubman. Brandon Taubman, he has been with the Astros since 2013. This is his first year running baseball operations and analytics. He assists the GM, but he also heads up the analytics department. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Shane and Matt. Appreciate it. Brandon, uh, you're calling in from Houston, I'm guessing, maybe? I'm actually in Fresno, California right now, so oh it's pretty goodness. early early in the AM out here, but we have our AAA affiliate and, uh, you know, Roster expansion in September is right around the corner, so it's an important time in the scouting season to, to kind of get out and see the guys and figure out how you'll bolster the roster in the final month heading into the playoffs. So what is the what is the head of research and development team? What is the assistant, the GM, doing out in Fresno, even if it is roster expansion season? What, what do your responsibilities include? You know, I've been trying to figure that out for the past six years working for Jeff. <laughs> is that right? It feels like... Uh, it's, it's whatever is the hot topic, and I kind of feel like at this point I'm helping to assist him run the, the you know, the day-to-day operation, but we're very fortunate that we have a lot of talented people that run the departments, the day-to-day that, you know, I oversee, including analytics. So, for example, we have a gentleman by the name of Mike Fass, who's the director of that team, who actually comes from, um, you know, out of industry, did semiconducting engineering, but became famous from all the analytics he was doing in the third-party space 10 years ago before, you know, teams were really in on it, and, and Billy Bean and the Oakland A's were kind of, you know, the full representation of analytics in in baseball. Um, and Mike was kind of the first to quantify catch framing as a real skill. And over the course of time, Jeff has acquired, uh, Jeff Luna, our GM, has acquired a group in the front office that includes Mike and people like him. And I've had the good fortune of kind of Riding Jeff's uh, coattails to the top, but it would all be impossible. And no matter what fancy title I have or responsibilities follow it, we're uh, we're lucky that we have a great group in Houston. Brandon, let me ask you one detail. A guy like Mike Fast comes in from semiconducting engineering. Can you give us an example, a concrete example of an analytics project that he's done or some kind of analysis that he's done? informed by his methods and training in engineering like in what way is his work different or what how would we know that someone at that level of sophistication is doing the work if we looked at what he did okay that's a, that's a great question and i think the answer to that is that some other industries have had experience first with dealing with large data sets including the semiconducting industry and now in baseball the technologies that are really dominating, including the StatCast system, which, you know, baseball geeks out there are familiar with. That's what gives you plate location, pitch quality information, as well as batted ball information and does some field tracking and all that. Like, those are massive data sets. Right, for sure. So the, the catcher framing example that I gave 
for Mike Fast out of industry. Um, all those same sorts of opportunities using data exist still. The technologies are just different. So he did it 10 years ago with, with you know, trying to understand how a catcher can turn a rule book ball into a strike or how a catcher can make the mistake of turning a strike into a ball and learning that that's actually like a quantifiable skill that's predictable or projectable. And now he's just doing that with pitch tracking data and sensor data from, you know, swing sensors that we're using for our hitters and all that sort of stuff. So the the opportunity is endless. And we actually have a little bit of the other problem now where we're kind of like drowning in data. I think that's common for teams. And we're trying to figure out what things we actually want to focus on. Because mm-hmm. there's, you know, more more opportunities than we can possibly seize. And uh, even with a growing analytics team, we're, we're resource constrained. So, uh, so Brandon, this is Adi Weiner. I want to just you know circle back to this this Mike. So, Mike published an article. Was it in Fangraphs back in two thousand eight or two thousand nine about catcher framing? He wrote for uh, Baseball Perspective. Baseball Perspective. So there wasn't. I mean, base. I remember. I think I remember reading some of these articles, and they just sort of tracked the using the early pitch FX or whatever they called it back then, exactly. and just sort of noticed that there were certain catchers who were more likely to get strikes around the corners, and and other catchers who weren't likely to get them, and and then it was. It was. Uh, they asked coaches and people who understood the game much more deeply than a semiconductor es- expert, and said, "Well, yeah, there are catchers who are really good at at kind of framing the pitch around where the ball was placed, and you can actually see them adjusting their body, adjusting their glove in such a way that it looks a lot better." And it was it was a really nice symbiosis between analytics and actual. It was a confirmation of what people who played the game knew, and what it did is it took it to a level where you can actually evaluate it and then invest based on those decisions that no one really could understand. It turned it into something that people knew existed, but it was measurable and predictable in a way that it it hadn't been, and that was the real turnaround. But this is a long time since then, and in fact, um, I've actually looked at this this, pitch framing data with one of my, well, now colleague, but former students, uh, Samir Deshpande, and we wrote a paper on this, and we've actually found that the, the... the, there's been real changes in the way that the the uh, umpires react to catcher pitch framing from it used to happen 10 to 12 they're years less ago. Sensitive to they're it much less sensitive to it and they're they're actually aware that it goes on they're they're, they're they change from year to year umpiring has gotten more efficient well it's hard to know whether it's it just it just changes <laughs> i mean that's really the way i've we, we've uh, we've we've characterized this so I would say Mike Fast changed the game. Basically. Oh yeah, it's like that they responded. It was it wasn't an equilibrium, and now they've responded. So I mean, are the Astros big into it now? I know this is something that the teams are, are all of mixed minds about. Are, are you willing to pay a lot of money for framing? I think we view it as a skill set, like we do other skill sets, and we've made mistakes in the past where we've, you know, been attracted to catchers that have this skill set and perform really well at it, but kind of are lacking in other areas, and because of that, they're exploitable. But it's one of the things we definitely pay attention to and we value, and I agree with your point, but in in some ways, um, so one, I just wanted to make this point, that you, you are right. First from data comes some observation of a skill that maybe you always knew existed, but you couldn't quantify, or maybe you never even knew it existed at all. But once you have that insight, there's an amazing opportunity to not only evaluate players with it, but also help players get better. And I think that's one of the points that that you touched on. And that's the most exciting yeah. exciting opportunity of all. And this goes back to, I remember in 2012, late, late 2012, when I first got with the Astros and Jason Castro was using this information for the first time. And he got noticeably 
better at framing. And I think he remains an above-average framer. But the, the season that he really started to train with this information, he got excellent at this. And so it begs the question, is this a, is this a skill that you don't care about acquiring, but you do care about training or, or what? And I think that's a big question for the Astros and for other teams is in this new big data universe where we're trying to, when we're discovering a lot of new things, what sort of effort do you put into sharing that information with the players and investigating the opportunity to help them train proactively instead of just using it for evaluation purposes? So, Brandon, how close do you and your team get to the player? Because there's been some high-profile um, interviews, statements made by players saying, I don't want to talk to these MIT people who don't know crap about the game. Um, and in fact, that was Jason Wirth recently has made more or less that statement. Are you Or do you always work with intermediaries? You don't go to a, a player and say, we need to work on your framing. <laughs> I saw right. this thing in my regression last night. <laughs> right. Here, come look at my state output. Yeah, J- Jason Wirth, we're not going to be giving Jason Wirth any, any help at any point soon on his baseball game. But um, I would say there are guys like Jason Wirth on every club but they're not in terms of of not wanting information their outlook on on information and all that there's always going to be a couple guys like that but we've built a culture here over the course of time where i think front office people like me are not necessarily or always viewed as like management people that are trying to use information against them to suppress their salary and this and that i think that we've bred a culture where the players even the difficult ones that don't want the information, you know, even on some level, they appreciate that we're here to help, that we're trying, that mm-hmm. our interests are aligned. In an in a, in a, in a ideal world, they would almost kind of put, put you in with trainers, right? You'd be kind of like, you know, a trainer. Or the conversation, right? So that yeah. that actually is what's, what's happening. Um, certainly at the minor league level for a few years, we have front office folks that go work with development coaches that are kind of tech-savvy manager types to support the manager. They're, they're bench coaches, if you will, but they're trained up in, you know, SQL and other skills that they're going to need to get data to players and all that. Uh, we, we have that culture. And then at the major league level, thank God for Jeff and AJ for partnering with people in the front office that are enthusiasts for bringing information to players in ways that will help them because we have a major league program where I get the opportunity, along with some other guys in our front office, to share this sort of information and we try to do it in a way that's not going to inundate the player and we cater the information according to kind of like the comprehension level of the player but yes we do have direct communication with the players and it's not just an analyst to a player or a coach to the player we look at it more like a, a scrum or a group where we kind of all get together and talk as transparently as possible about what issues we see and it's awesome my my favorite moments in the game are ones where i feel like i've actually had an impact in helping a player get better right it's like a thrill to identify a good help identify a good player bring in a player that the rest of the industry undervalued but it's an even sweeter feeling to watch a guy succeed on the field and feel like you actually help them i imagine it's it's kind of what a what a coach feels like you know right 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 obviously i don't have that number of touch points or involvement or influence, but yeah, like Garrett Cole coming in and being able to talk with him and Brent Strom in spring training about opportunities we see, like those are the best moments in baseball and the ones I really look forward to. We're talking to Brandon Taubman. Brandon is in his first season a senior director of baseball operations and analytics, but he's been with the Astros since 2013. 
you're, you're, you said that you, you try not to inundate the player and you, you try to tailor it to what they need. Can you give us one concrete example of taking analyses? And again, this is analyses coming out of, out of groups that include people that used to be in semiconductor or in you know, NASA. It's probably some fairly sophisticated I'm, modeling going on that has to somehow be exactly. communica- communicated to somebody who does not have training in sophisticated modeling. That's right. I mean, Brandon, you yourself used to value derivatives at Ernst & Young, and so communicating in that environment is very different than communicating to a player in spring training. But can you just give us one concrete example of distilling that kind of sophisticated analysis into a form that can be used by the guys who have to use it? Sure. So um, sticking with pitch data, the data that comes from the StatCast system, um, you can have lots of different observations from that data on a mass level, like looking at a season's worth of data, um, trying to forecast the player's performance based on that, or just looking at last night's game data and trying to see if the pitcher's velocity down is whatever. And we have some really sophisticated users of that information, like Cole and Verlander, who will review that data on their own. They know how to get it off the, you know, clubhouse PCs when they have questions. We have uh, dedicated people in, in the clubhouse known as advanced scouts that help the players prepare against the upcoming competition. But mm-hmm. for the most part, they're they're self-sufficient. And they could go see, like, okay, my fastball had less hop to it. Like, I wasn't getting behind it as much. Or, okay, my you know, my changeup didn't have as much tailing action. Let me Let me, you know look at the break chart and then go throw a side session with Doug White or bullpen coach, try to get the field right. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, you know, the, the, it's almost like when the players retire, if they have interest in working in baseball, even though they will have made 150 million, like there might be opportunity for them to be technical analysts of some kind. But then you have some folks that, you know, didn't have the sort of educational opportunity that, you guys and I had growing up and no formal education, have no chance, no computer literacy, no chance of right. you know, use, using that information. I don't want to say exactly who, but in that case, it will always almost, if we have some insight, some concern, whatever, we'll go grab a coach and coach will say like, okay, let me go discuss this with the player and I'll get back to you. And the, and the coach will put it in layman's terms and Got it. If they have a question. We'll try to do it, do mm-hmm. it that way. You know, mm-hmm. so not everyone, the, the raw data that's pouring in, is really overwhelming, but we put a lot of focus on building intuitive data visualizations on top of that data. Mm-hmm. And that gets us to a point where most players can consume it, but when they can't, we have coaches that kind of act as the liaison. Mm-hmm. Well, you're building a bit of a track record for taking free agents up a level when they get to you. So signed Garrett Cole as a free agent. Now he's a Cy Young candidate. Last year, of course, midseason, late season, take that Verlander trade and then Charlie Morton as well. Charlie Morton as well. Can you give us, I mean, can, did these guys know coming in that y'all were going to have like a little something extra for them to, to take their game up? Or how is it that you're taking someone like Ver, Verlander who. It's long term if you can kind of get this reputation. Obviously, it's going to make ac- free agent acquisitions yeah, yeah, even it, easier. Yeah, right. It's a good recruiting pitch. It, what? it is. And it's amazing because in, in the early years, we would sometimes offer top dollar for a player and still not get him and we just had an awful reputation because the team had been bad for a really long time and jeff came in and he was trying to turn over a new leaf and make us a data-driven organization and it was hard to get free agents to want to come here and be part of the rebuild we did get some like scott feldman and jed lowry back in the day but yeah i mean the fact that we have a philosophy with 
player development that goes all the way up to the major league level where it's all about exploiting information ahead of the competition, figuring out how to take information and, and package it for players so that they could be proactive with their own development. I mean, that is our mantra. We do that. It's real. And over the course of time, yeah, it's become a nice selling point now where, you know, we have players that want to come to us to get things figured out and it's a good problem to have, but we are uh, a really good team and it's, you know, our, our, I guess our, our internal replacement level, so to speak, is, is really high. So it's hard to, you know, we're focused on finding good players. We're, I think, past the point of wanting to find players that have a lot of development opportunity and fix them. But um, right. every player has something to work on all the time. And even if we're noticing small differences in arm slot or pitch quality, we're going to share it with the players and coaches and try to achieve a level of like almost radical transparency in the way we handle information. So, so Brandon, this is uh, the big the big uh, names on everyone's minds are, of course, Morton and Verlander. And how do they fit into your sort of description of what you do with with acquiring top talent who are yep. could still be much better? I mean, Verlander was seemed to be past his his prime, and Morton, I don't think anyone thought that much of him. He came to the Astros. Both of them go, you know, are sort of off the charts. Um, did you see that ahead of time, or are we just back back testing back fitting this? So, with a combination, I think with Morton. That was a success in the application of all of our fancy information and all that, but it was more of a like player evaluation find. We saw that his velocity was up quite a bit in a short stint following a, a hip injury with Philly. He's a player that, when healthy, always performed really well, but there was some injury risk there, and we saw him come back from injury and pitch at a career best level, and he was kind of available at a bargain mm-hmm. uh, bargain price. When he came in, we shared things with him like we do with everybody, and he's taken to them, but I do attribute the success of Charlie Morton to his successful comeback, his hard work, and the fact that our player evaluation function picked up on that. So are you with, saying, almost like, just to interrupt here, I, I, this is a very... You, you recognize that the high-speed Everyone had the ability to look at that, too, but you jumped on it faster. You, you realized, you know what, I think this is legitimate, and everyone else might have just been looking at it going, eh, we don't know, and, and you, you, you were confident that this was, was for real. Yes, exactly. And I wouldn't say, like, like confident. We, we believe that, you know, we live in a probabilistic world, and we believe in looking at players like, uh, you know, it, not in a cold-hearted way, but they're – their assets and because their underlying skill changes and the approach for agency, their value is always changing or depreciating over time. You could choose to, to kind of look at it that way. And with any investment you make in the financial markets, you're going to face some sort of risk or payoff profile. I think it was the same for Morton where we saw a lot of upside in the guy that could start that, you know, he had a, a really bold projection based on his past performance because, like I said, anytime he's been healthy, he's pitched well. And we saw injury risk, and we said, okay, let's take the injury risk. It's worth it because this guy performed well when he was at 91, and now he's at 96. And so mm-hmm. let's let's make the move. And then when he got here, you know, we shared some stuff about pitch location and usage and all that and made sure that, uh, you know, Brian McCann and, and those guys were kind of in sync with the plan. It's all worked out well, but... The main thing that happened is he started to throw way, way harder, and we picked up on that. Um, that's not something we, we developed, although I think when we learn how to give guys five miles per hour extra, we'll be in pretty good shape. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's, that's, that's a skill that I'll... 
would definitely serve you well. We're talking to Brandon Tabman. Brandon is in his first season as Senior Director of Baseball Operations and Analytics for the Houston Astros. He's been with the club since 2013. And the way you're talking about this, Brandon, it sounds like the traditional analytics group has blended into a player development group or at least quite cooperative with the player development folks, even into some coaching roles mm-hmm. in, or at least cooperative. I mean, there's an integration there in the way you're talking about identifying and developing players that feels next level compared to what I see and hear from other organizations. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. and uh, I agree with it. I mean, in, in 2013, when I started, I think the debate we were having in the front office and the debate that much of the industry was having was, what was analytics role in like pro scouting and player evaluation? Mm-hmm. And the view at that time was, okay, you need your pro scouting function and they will give you their perspective of how, you know, skilled athletic the player is based on the, the now, right? Like they're judging with their eyes real time. and They're saying the player has skills. Right. And the analytics perspective was completely different. It didn't care what the skills were right now. They looked at, you know, three years of past performance, records to try to predict the future. And that's the kind of the way that we, we operate in the early going, but we've moved very quickly towards this integrated model. I like to think of it as a kind of like hub and spoke model that has research and development or, or analytics, if you want to call it that, sitting in the middle, and every other department is dependent on it mm. uh, for, for consuming information. And Jeff has hired the appropriate people yeah. and set the culture such that it's a pull model. It's not like analytics is through right. pushing this down everyone's throat. We have, you know, our head of international and domestic amateur scouting, Mike Elias, that's asking for information all the time from us, you know, and, and the same across all of our departments. So what it, you're sensing from our conversations, definitely true. Yeah, it really is dependent on the hires. Those end users are they're not quite even the guys in the field, but like the guys in player development, the guys on the bench, the coaches, the, the guys in uniform essentially need to want this stuff. You have to hire the right guys into those positions, or it doesn't matter how good your R&D group is there in the middle. Listen, we don't want to get away without hearing some of your thoughts on this year's team. I mean, you guys are you know performing at a very high level, but you're kind of overshadowed by what's going on in the AL East in some sense. One question that comes to mind is that you seem to have so far navigated some of the challenges that come from winning world championships. I mean, the Cubs, you know, I think they would even admit to having a hard time getting motivated in the first half of the season. The locker room was different and they kind of struggled and they hit their pace late in the year after winning the championship. But teams do this. How, what's going on with y'all this season and what do you think's been done to avoid the typical kind of, you know, traps that follow a, a championship? Well, I, I literally just knocked on wood in my crappy Fresno hotel room just now. Um, <laughs> so, sorry, you are in Fresno. Sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, I mean, you guys have definitely had some uh, bad luck with injuries in the la- you know, last few months, so that's obviously been something that you've had to deal with. We've hit a little bump in, in the road, and we're still in first place, but barely so. Oakland's Oakland's right on our heel, and they're playing really good baseball. We feel really good about our team. Um, we have had injuries, but fortunately, all of Altuve, Springer, um, Lance, Devo, like these are all guys that are suffering short-term issues and should be back soon. So we feel good about having a complete team heading into the playoffs, bearing mm-hmm. any unforeseen issues. But um, what we can't control for, obviously, is that there's a – ton of luck in this game and in other sports analysts can predict with more 
confidence, you know, game outcome or player production, but we're in a sport where, uh, you know, round ball, round bat. Um, we're lucky that we have a whole lot of discrete sort of, uh, outcomes to measure that make my job and my people's job easier. But in terms of like whether the best team always wins, um, it's, it's the most random in, in baseball of all sports. So that makes me nervous. And, uh, we got to just focus on having the right process and doing the right things and hope the results follow. We did last year, but like you said, it's a different uh, market reality this year with Austin playing so well and Oakland right on our heels. So we'll have to see what happens from here. Brandon, that was such an analytics-y response to what I thought was kind of a organizational culture, motivational leadership kind of softball question. I, I, I Especially, you, you've talked a lot about culture, but you've, ta- you've emphasized the culture that Jeff has helped build integrating analytics with an R&D with, with more traditional baseball guys. Dude, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, how did you, how did you guys keep the clubhouse straight? How did you guys keep people motivated? What do you, what do you think, if anything, the organization has done differently than other teams who have struggled on the other end of a championship? We get the chance thing. We understand that completely, but is there, do you think there's anything different about this club or the way they're run that is helping them not fall into the post championship? It's a couple of things. One, on the player level, we have a ridiculously good group of guys that are self-motivated. Like, Greg Bregman is a complete animal. On my off day last week at 8 p.m., I was leaving, and he was first coming in to take reps by himself. So we have a lot of that, and I know, you know, it may sound made up, but but it's it's real. Like, he's he's incredible, and so are many of his teammates. And mm-hmm. so that's we have that on the foundational level. Yep. The other thing is that Jeff and AJ has set the tone since – the first day of spring training in saying that the goal here was never just to win one world series. It was to be perennial contenders for the world series. And mm-hmm. that's always kind of been the, the bar that we've, we've set and we've kept in mind. Um, and then the third thing, which doesn't really get talked about very much is the health management or fatigue management mm, right. aspect. And, you know, it's all anecdotal, but you could argue that teams that have one world series and then come back and, you know, not really met prior seasons, you know, performance levels, uh, that it's, it's been, I guess what I'm saying is often it's because teams wear down because in the previous year they've gone the distance and, um, that has a real toll. And we're lucky that we both had the depth and a really good, um, high performance and athletic training staff that I think has done a really good job keeping our players healthy. Okay. So we only have a few minutes, but you just touched on something that we always love to get a little detail on when we have the opportunity, and that is the sports science you just referred to as high performance and training. What is an example of something you guys are doing, because I'm sure that it's pretty far out there on the frontier, to make sure your your athletes are at peak performance, that they're getting enough rest, that they're not having, you know, you can do whatever you can to identify and, and get in the way of injuries before they happen. What is there one thing that y'all are doing that you that you can give us an example of or, or a new thing that you've added? You know, on, on some of the cutting-edge things we're trying to do, I obviously can't speak freely about them, but I'll say more generally that in the wearable space, mm-hmm. there's wearable technologies. There's a lot to be learned, and we've talked about that at the performance level. we talked about sensor technology, you know, catcher framing data, everything that comes from StatCast and so on. And on the high-performance or, you know, strength and conditioning side, there's a whole world of wearables that – you know, people that train in the Olympics have been using for, for a decade by now, and they're kind of first making their way in. And what I love about that is finally giving players an objective feedback loop 
and objective training targets on the, the high performance side. So um, that's all changing very quickly, but unfortunately I can't get into the, the specifics of our, our work there. Yeah, I hear you. Um, one general issue, though, is like player privacy and who owns the information. Yeah, we know this is definitely. going to be a big deal in, in, in a number of sports. And the tension usually is, okay, we it's in the player's best interest. You know, we want those guys to not get hurt. We want them to be at their best on the field. And they can believe that. But there's also the risk that the club will use it against them in some sense. That they'll, you know, they'll know when a guy's, you know, not performing, and they'll know it at a different level of, with a different level of certainty than they have in the past. Can you tell us anything about how you're navigating that? That's a, this is a real issue. I'm sympathetic to both sides because it seems a waste to not use the information. Right? We're throwing away really good information at the same time. We, it, it's not really fair to put players um, under that kind of, um, you know, leverage. I suppose. We're, we're not handling the problem well, so I have to reject your leading your leading question. It's a big issue for us, and we haven't okay. quite okay. figured it out. When you say and us, do you mean had... the Astros, or do you mean MLB? Both, I think. Okay. So the, the Players Association takes the stance that, not officially, my impression is that they take the stance that, given the choice, players should not use wearables if they don't need to. Wow. Wow. Some of the technologies, like the... Um, some camera tech, camera-based technologies and the Statcast system are, are non-invasive, so right, right. they exist. But when it comes to wearables, there's so much rich data that comes from accelerometers and gyros, and uh, there are other technologies like that we could be using for fatigue monitoring and so on that we don't for this issue, and we haven't really solved it. Um, and think about you know in any sort of labor management. Yeah. Uh, context, like if your boss just asked you to submit to a physical that would give him a much greater understanding of your health and whether you might need medical insurance in the future, you know, it's a slippery slope. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a question or issue that a lot of industries are facing, but baseball sure. has not quite figured it out. There's a tension there where clubs want this information very, very badly, and the PA tells them every year frequently, don't trust the clubs, don't do this. Yeah. And sometimes, because clubs do abuse the information, but yeah. we're trying to build a reputation where where we we look at it differently, and any information we have, we give back to the players, but it's a constant war to, you know, you think you have the trust of a player, and they use the information, and you love that, and then all of a sudden, they've, they've stopped, and you try to understand why, and you find out it's because, oh, the PA just came and they explained to the players that they shouldn't be using these technologies, and so now the player's scared. And the Players Association is offering that advice because it's probably good advice in right. totality based on their experiences. It's not like they're they're leading their, their players astray here, but I think for the Astros specifically, we, we are building our entire strategy around this so it's especially important that we figure it out and yeah. that we, we find a way to you know keep players trust but there's no policy or incentive that i think deals with that it's more like a cultural issue that you have to handle over time okay i appreciate the candor on that it's a big issue you're right not just with the astros but not just with baseball not just with sports but across organizations it's a big one that's going to have to be navigated in the, in the next couple of years brandon we'll let you go we really appreciate you taking the time especially from fresno california this morning we wish you the best with your work Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.